While other hospitality businesses are trying to just survive in this pandemic, we talked to the owner of a growing New Hampshire winery empire about buying an event center and golf course and ask her, why the heck did you do that? Hello, I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business New Hampshire Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, founder and president of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. <laughs> uh, hey, Matt. So um, in a nice little theme of our guest today, I have a, I have a very serious question for you. I'm ready. Um, what are some of your favorite drinks? And I'm not talking like, you know, ginger ale and Adult water. Beverage. Adult beverages. All right. Yeah. Give me your, give me your lineup. Oh, this pandemic has certainly inspired it. Um, so um, I am a total... I, 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 you know how they say, you know, you judge a president whether or not you'd sit down and have a beer with him. Mm-hmm. I would completely fail that test. Oh my God. I why? don't like beer. <laughs> I just don't. I'm sorry. All you beer drinkers out there. Well, I am like hardcore, like, but hardcore girly, like give me a oh good cocktail. Boy. If it's got an umbrella in it, I'm all about it. my favorites in Alabama slammer. Ooh. I have never been able to memorize all the ingredients in it because mm-hmm. by the time I asked the bartender, I'd probably had a couple and oh then God. it hits. So, you know, you just, you know, you have to wrap your legs around the bar stool so you're balanced, you know, and then you're Hold good for on to the edge of the bar stool, right? Yeah, exactly. I have to say during the summer, the I bar. go a bit old school, seven and seven. Oh, That's okay. Not, that All nice, right. refreshing. All right. Yeah. Boy, I'm all about that. Yeah. All right. What about okay. you? Uh, I'm a Manhattan guy. Oh. I'm a Negroni guy and good, like really good red wine. Nice, deep, rich, like lots of different, you know, layers and flavors. And like, that's where I am. I love a Manhattan after I play a round of golf. I don't know what it is. Well, I do know what it is. My grandfather used to, you know, when, when he was, when he was still alive, he would have a Manhattan, you know, at the country club and I would, you know, I'd be there with him sometime and it just became a thing. That's kind of a tribute thing, I guess. I'll have my Manhattan after a round of golf, but I'm like, oh, I have two or three during the week at home too. I've always wanted to be, the, <laughs> I've always wanted to be a wine person though. You know, the, the swish, the sniff, like talking about legs and all that. I'm just yeah. not sophisticated. Yeah. Not well, big. you may be able to become a wine person after today. So we're <laughs> yes. going to, we're going to pull in our guests real quick because we can't have a conversation without, about favorite drinks without asking Amy LaBelle what her favorite kind of drink is. Oh, hi guys. I, you know, how could I say anything but wine, right? <laughs> there you go. But, yeah. you know, if you, if you push me really hard, I'll tell you that I like to have wine at certain times, but mm-hmm. I also love my cocktails and I love a great old fashioned. Oh yeah. Cause I love bourbon. So I love bourbon based cocktails for yes. sure. Oh, see, I knew I liked her. This is great. This is great. All right. Well, uh, you know, I think that pretty much rounds it out. And now it's time to give her the real intro she deserves. That's right. Today's guest is Amy LaBelle, founder and winemaker at LaBelle Winery. Amy's a former corporate attorney with a lifelong interest in wine. She's also the founder of Empowering Angels, an organization focused on empowering young women through entrepreneurship. Welcome, Amy. And I feel like we have so much to unpack. I'm so glad you're here to chit chat with us for a while about, um, about your success and your story. Thank you. 
Well, thank you so much for inviting me and having me and talking with me about all the fun things we're doing at LaBelle. I'm, I'm excited to tell you all about it. Cool, cool. Um, so let's get down to kind of like figure this out. We'll get, we'll get a, little, a little timeline going. What were you doing prior to being a winemaker and what prompted you to start the business? Oh, gosh. I know. Um, go back a ways, right? Oh, wow. A <laughs> hundred years ago, yeah. um, I was practicing law in Boston, and I was working at a large law firm and then uh, transitioned into um, in-house legal work at Fidelity Investments. Um, and after I started my job at Fidelity, I took a, a summer vacation, and I went up to Nova Scotia, Canada, not to wine country. Um, I'm in Nova Scotia, Canada. I brought my little car with me on the ferry. So I drove all the way up the East Coast. And on that drive up to Halifax, I came across a a little sign kind of, you know, poked into the ground with a hand-painted arrow on it. And it said, winery, you know, this way. (sighs) And I was like, hey, I'm on vacation. I'm going to go there. Let's I, follow I, that arrow. Let's follow the yeah. arrow. It just drew me down the, this little dirt road. And, I, you know, I had time. I had time. I was interested in wine. I, I, I had been starting to drink wine as, as, you know, a person with a budget. You know, in law school, I was so incredibly poor. So I never drank wine because I didn't have any money. But, um, you know, as soon as I started getting a regular paycheck, I was really loving learning about wine. I always loved to cook. So, you know, wine was fascinating to me, but I'd not spent a lot of time doing anything with wine up to that point. So anyway, I get down to this little tiny winery at the end of the dirt road in Nova Scotia, and I walked into that place, and I can't describe it strong enough. It was like a ton of bricks hit me, like the total life epiphany, the smells, the sights, the people, Mm. the wine that I was tasting. I said, oh my gosh, I think that I've missed my calling. The mothership called you home. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) And it was so strong. I still, I have goosebumps on my arms. You just gave them to me too. Even talking about it now. (laughs) It was such a strong feeling. I said, oh my gosh, I think I really missed my thing. I think I'm supposed to be a winemaker. And what I'm so grateful for is that in that moment, I didn't push that thought down, you know, as I think people can do and say, oh, that's crazy. You know, I just just had this great job at Fidelity. I still had $103,000 in law school debt at that moment um, because I'd paid for a school, you know, as I went along the way and took some loans to pay for the rest. (laughs) Um, So, you know, not a rational thought at that moment. Oh, I'm going to just be a winemaker. Plus, let's not forget that I didn't know how to make wine at that moment. Little details. Tiny, tiny. We'll figure that out. (laughs) We'll figure that out. So, you know, and I, but I hope when I, as I talk to people who have, who have been able to achieve dreams in their life and, you know, dream big, the, the fact that you don't know how to do something never really stops you, right? You know, you'll figure it out. You know, you're, you're smart. You walk the earth. You've made it this far. I figured, I figured I'd work out the wine part. Yeah. 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 And as something is, as, as, um, I mean, not that it's easy necessarily, but it's something that is, um, widely as widely known as winemaking. There's a method, there's a way to do things. Yep. So you can learn that, right? Yeah, You're absolutely. An and I started learning immediately. Nice. So, and I read voraciously anyway. I love to read and I love to learn. I'm actually quite a dork. I'm a real nerd. Oh good. So. That's the only folks we have here on this <laughs> cast in age. So there it is. Dorks who drink bourbon and wine. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> so Hopefully. I went home from that trip and I mean, I was obsessed. So I just started reading everything I'd get my hands on. And um, I eventually, uh, after three or four weeks, I decided to try my hand at my first one gallon batch. Nice. Now picture this, I'm living in a brick, you know, brownstone apartment uh-huh. on the fourth floor of a brownstone walk up in Boston. 
um, 608 square feet. And it's now, <laughs> and, and, and my first one gallon batch is sitting on the counter there and it started making the whole brownstone, all of the floors smell so beautiful because fermentation smells amazing. And so all my neighbors started saying, you know, like, what are you doing up there? <laughs> I said, you just wait. I'm doing really good things. Be able to pay you back later. That's right. Cool. Um, so more about that. What was that learning curve like and, or sort of when did you, when did you take the leap to, and you know, knowing that you didn't suppress that thought that you really wanted to do this, when did you take the leap and what was that learning curve like to, to sort of get there? Yeah. So I, I, I often tell people, um, from that moment in Nova Scotia, when I walked into that winery from that day, it took me 4,083 days to open the doors of LaBelle Winery Amherst. And that's about 12 and, 12 and a quarter years yep. to you know, wow. do the math. But so, you know, this is, it takes a long time to achieve your dreams and your goals. You know, I still had to keep my job so I could pay down the student loans. I could save up some money. Um, I had to learn how to make wine. And I did that by, you know, practicing at home on my own and reading voraciously and then ultimately going to the University of Davis at California's uh, distance learning program, which is incredible. So, you know, I was able to get that street cred, you know, the science behind the winemaking, which was really important because, you know, they don't teach you science in law school. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I needed that. You know, I needed the chemistry. I needed the biology. I need all that. Because winemaking is really art and science yeah. blended together. So um, needed that science piece. And so got all that under my belt. That took about five years. And, you know, all this time I'm literally counting the days because I forced myself to do one thing every day to move that dream forward. I never took a day off from trying to get there. And then, you know, moving into a place where I was able to find a loose partnership with the folks out at Allison's Orchard in Walpole, New Hampshire, where mm -hmm. I began making wine. Um, I made my first 400 gallons of commercial wine at Allison's Orchard. Beautiful 200-acre oh, wow. yeah. apple orchard overlooking the Connecticut River Valley. Such a great place. So, yeah, I made my first wine there and then, you know, doubled my batch the following year. Kept selling, you know, sold out of those. Decided I needed to move that production home. So I built um, a barn at my home and uh, really started growing my production there. By then, I'd met my, my poor husband, Caesar. <laughs> I say that because, you know, he ultimately left his career to join me on this, this crazy dream that we have. And he's been just an incredible support and an incredible partner along the ride here. But, you know, by then, he and I had met. We had built a house. We built this little barn behind to start wine production there. And we had a baby right away because I was pretty old when we <laughs> we met. And we were like, well, we may as well do that too. So we had a baby and then another one. We had two boys pretty quickly. And so we were making wine at night and on the weekends when the babies were sleeping. And because we both still had our day jobs. It was crazy. I can't even imagine. It was I mean, mental. having toddlers and a full-time job and then trying to grow a business. So where were you initially selling? How You know, it's... There's a lot of products that you can go, I, I know automatically, you know, kind of like I'll go to the farmer's market and all that. But wine is, you know, it's alcohol, it's controlled. So how did you go about building a market? Yeah, we built and we still build. We still feel and we often say we're building the market for our, our wines and one, pro, one customer at a time. Right. So still, I just always believed in the beginning if I could just get someone to try it, if I could get them to put it in their mouth and give it a try and give it a chance, they would come to learn that wine in New Hampshire can be really excellent and really excellent quality. 
Because, um, you know, if the best winemaker in France or California moves to New Hampshire and makes wine, isn't the wine going to be good? Of course it is, because it's an art. And so, you know, this getting people over that misconception early on, you know, that's 15, 20 years ago almost now, um, getting the people of New Hampshire to believe that wine could be made here that was good and good quality. I just needed them to try it. So we did it. It was like a grassroots feet on the ground effort. You know, Caesar or I would go and set up a little table and get a store to carry us. We'd go, we'd get people to taste it. We'd hope we could sell enough that night to get some pull-through demand, and they'd buy a case or two, um, and we just built the, the following that way, literally one store, one customer at a time. And then eventually we got distributed up through not just all the stores that we were able to hand sell, but through the, the New Hampshire Liquor Commission. So we were, you know, verging on like 150 or something stores that we were distributing to, just Caesar wow. and I. That's awesome. It was crazy. Mm. We were working so hard. <laughs> we loved every minute of it. And, um, you know, building our wholesale distribution. And that's when we, we really saw that it was time to build the, the facility that you all know and love. And that's what and I was going to ask. What was that tipping point for you where you realized we need <laughs> oh, to get out of here? She's got a story. Wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> I remember the day, the exact day when Caesar and I looked at each other. We had we had now, so we had the, you know, the little barn. It was just a 1,200 square foot barn full of tanks and fermentation. We could barely walk through that barn anymore because it was full of so much stuff, like you know, finished wine, tanks, all the equipment to make wine. And we were maxing out once a month. We'd have a tasting in that barn for the public. And, you know, we, we had waiting lists for weeks and we didn't have enough space to put people in. Didn't, we, it was like clear that we were out of room and out of capacity. So um, we were starting to store stuff in the, in the garage and in the basement. All our cars are outside. <laughs> we're like, okay. <laughs> I think there was a snowstorm and there was nowhere to put the cars so we could plow the driveway because we couldn't drive. It was crazy. <laughs> like there was wine stuff everywhere. And oh, we said, wow. that's it. That's it. We got to start looking for funding to build the real thing, which is was had always been the goal. I just needed to kind of organically build up to it because, you know, I didn't have a trust fund. And the funding, was that a challenge or not? I mean, because yes. it, you were breaking ground in New Hampshire, essentially. Yes. You know, I, I can't imagine going to traditional funding going... I'm going to build one of the first wineries in the state. Give me money. And they're like, yeah. here, have it all. Yeah. You're not yeah. a risk at all. Yeah, sure. it was just like right. that. <laughs> <laughs> they wrote me a check that day. It was of course perfect. they did. Yeah. So millions. Good, little, good little bankers they are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did it take to secure that funding? It took persistence. Um, you know, we had built this little organic successful business model, but it was teeny tiny. And not proven. And as you say, we weren't just building a brand, we were creating an entire market, right? Nothing like LaBelle existed. And there was nothing for people to kind of, you know, hold on to and say, oh, yeah, that could work. So, you know, I was a business lawyer, so I had a stellar business plan. And I made it all glossy and beautiful. And my package looked so great. And I thought, this is great. They're just going to love this. They're going to love it as much as I do. <laughs> and the first bank said, hell no. <laughs> the second bank said, no. The third bank said no, and the fourth bank, you know what they said? No. Oh, God. She had me going. <laughs> the, suspense, <laughs> the suspense of his good story. Oh, man. And so 
It wasn't until we partnered with Enterprise Bank in Lowell, uh, who really has a very entrepreneurial bent, and they they believed in the story. And it took me about six months, but they believed in the dream, they believed in the goal, and they believed we could get it done. So they did partner with us. I mean, I was asking for a lot of money. I was asking for five and a half million dollars in the middle of um, the recession. So it was mm-hmm. like 2010, yeah. which is, was a tough time to ask for money, granted. But you know what? My favorite thing is is when all those bankers who said no come to events at the winery. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Nice to see you. See what we've done. (laughs) Oh, you know, it's just fun. I have my fun. Oh my goodness. Um, So we know, yeah, we, you sort of set the foundation for us. Um, How has the business evolved and grown over the years? Um, We, we alluded um, in, in our little intro preview that um, you uh, did something that not many people would do in the middle of a pandemic, perhaps by buying an additional facility. So tell us about, yeah, how things have, have grown and maybe what the future holds too. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for that question. The, um, you know, the Amherst facility hosts over 300 events a year. Um, it has also pretty much maxed its capacity for storage of completed wine, barreled wine. I mean, we've got 130 barrels in my wine program now, um, in, in addition to the tanks. Um, so, you know, production has increased. I've got all these events going on. The restaurant is maxed. And so we had been planning to build across the street from the winery. And you and I talked about that. You and I yes. talked about that project way back in the day. Um, so we, we bought the land across the street from the winery. We were ready to build a distillery, um, expand the restaurant over there, put in some more event space so I could expand that business. Was the plan for bourbon? Absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, man. 100%. <laughs> and other fun things, but <laughs> bourbon at the center because I needed to get that aging into barrel. You know, mm-hmm. that takes a long time. So I was excited to learn that new process and get that facility moving, but um, that was to break ground in June of 2020. And that was when COVID hit. Oh. Right. So the, when the world just stopped. And so when that happened And in we March, started drinking a lot more wine, yes. mind you. Yes, me too. <laughs> but how did you react to that? I mean, it was such a, you know, an, this huge moment for everybody. And, but we all had to pivot in different ways. So you're going ahead full steam with trying to establish this new part of your business. What happened at that point? Well, on, you know, March 17th, we were ordered shut and it was one of the worst days of my life. Um, That morning, my son had um, surgery on his arm because he'd broken his arm very badly the day prior. So I had to take him for surgery first thing in the morning, um, get him through that, get him home. All the while I'm sitting in the waiting room, you know, watching the news conference on you know, what was happening, you know, Governor Sununu telling us about the shutdown and what kind of assistance there might be available. Who, who knew what was happening at right. that point, right? So I'm just trying to figure out how to take care of my family, take care of my employees. You know, I, at that time I had 104, 104 employees on the day we got shut. Um, so after I got Jack, my son settled, after his surgery at home, I went to work and I laid off 90 people. Oof. And that was a bad day. I love my team, and I've got a team of incredible people at LaBelle Winery, man. So laying them off was, or furloughing, I guess, is the is the nicer term. But yeah. um, So t- I was scared that day for my business, scared for my family, scared for my team. And uh, that night we did have bourbon, and I made a fat steak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. We did. I had a whole bunch of Woodford. Um, so, you know, that was a hard day. 
I will tell you there's nothing quite as sad as silence inside a hospitality business. Mm. So over those next few weeks, um, you know, that silence was just, um, I don't know, it's like nothing I've ever experienced because the place that's usually filled with laughter and happiness and celebration and oof, that was rough. But what you have to think about is for a winery, um, Everything wasn't didn't, didn't just stop. It's you know I can't just close the doors. The vines are still growing and they need tending. The wine is still in tank and barrel and it needs tending. So certain aspects of my business had to keep moving forward, right? And Mother Nature keeps moving, and you know you know it it just still needs you know to be managed. So that part of the business was rolling forward. But the thing I'm most proud of during COVID, or, or about that early part of that shutdown was that within five days, my team launched a family meal program that served our community with healthy, awesome food. Because, you know, remember, supply chain was weird. We, mm-hmm. The grocery stores were kind of empty. It was People couldn't get chicken. It was weird. But I could because all the restaurants closed. So restaurant supply chain was packed with chicken. So it was interesting. We So we started doing a little bit of grocery service out of the restaurant for... You know, my community who needed flour and yeast and all the stuff people needed, milk, toilet paper, had that. You guys didn't, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> boxes I mean, and boxes. That's right. I mean, I know customers using it, right? Um, but we started this family meal program that served our community with these healthy, affordable meal solutions. You know, a soup, a salad, a main, a rolls, butter, and, and dessert. All of it. Feed a family of four for probably a day and a half. It was a lot of food. And this program um, picked up such steam and gained such support from the community. You know, I had people, I, could, I saw messages all the time on Facebook, like sharing out our family meal of the week and saying, look, every time you go to LaBelle Winery and you ask them for a gift card for your, you know, fundraising for your nonprofit, they give it to you because we've supported. We do so much charity work at LaBelle. You know, we've supported over 1,800 charities since we opened. That's incredible. Oh, it's really something we're very proud of. Um, it's, it's, you know, why, why be in business if you can't help your community, you know? Right. Why grow if you don't want to just help more? So, but the thing I saw was all this coming back. And all of these charities and all these people that we'd helped in the past coming out of the woodwork to buy family meals. They're like, it's your turn to support LaBelle. Let's help LaBelle. And that was incredible. And see, I'm getting goosebumps again because it You're, was so again, beautiful. Again, giving them to me right over here. <laughs> oh, man. It was an incredible, like, love feeling coming Mm -hmm. back at us, you know, Mm -hmm. and that program saved us. It kept the lights on. It did not, it it brought in 8%, eight single digit, 8% of our usual revenue, but it was enough to keep the lights on and keep the, keep the ball rolling until we could open up again. Yeah. So that was how that looked. And so of course the project across the street from us got put on hold. Um, the funding wasn't going to be there anyway. No bank was going to fund a hospitality project in the middle of COVID. Right. So that wasn't happening. So we just pulled the plug on all of those plans. The supply chain wouldn't have allowed it anyway. Building was not happening. So we pulled the plug on all that. But fast forward um, to July of 2020, you know, we're, we're back open. Revenue's starting to come in again. We're feeling like Things might be okay. We weren't sure, but we at least we thought, great, we're not going to lose our house <laughs> like, right. or the business. Like we're going to be okay. And we get a call from the folks uh, down in Derry at Brookstone Events and Golf Center, and they said, "Hey, um, we would like to sell our business to you. 
would you like to buy it? Um, <laughs> our, their father had built uh, that business and he passed in the spring and the kids just, they did not want to run a hospitality business. And, you know, honestly, if you don't love hospitality, you shouldn't run a hospitality business because it's too hard. Especially Otherwise, during a pandemic. Especially in a <laughs> pandemic. So they were eager to sell it. They wanted somebody who could carry their father's vision forward. He had a big vision for the property that it's never kind of came. It's a beautiful property. It what is a legacy. Beautiful. It's an absolutely lovely place. And we've kind of taken it over. We, so we agreed to take it over. We didn't, we couldn't get bank financing for it though. So that that family self-financed it, which is the only reason we were able to get that property at all in the middle of a pandemic. Right. So I do want to explore that a little bit though. I mean, you're, you're barely, you know, things are just starting to reopen. You're starting to get, you know, just your sea legs again. And this opportunity comes up. It's an opportunity a lot of people probably would have said, I'll pass. I've got enough on my plate. This is not the time for me to take on another hospitality business. What, what sold it for you? What, 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 what kind of pro- decision-making process did you go through that you arrived at? You know what? Let's expand. It's such a good question. And I think, I think every rational person on earth should have walked away from that opportunity. <laughs> Honestly, it's, 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 um, it's hard to explain except that I'll say that I saw the opportunity and I figured, what is, what do they say? Favor fortune, fortune favors the bold. Yes. I don't, is that the phrase? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, you know, either this is going to be the greatest thing we ever did, or it's going to completely ruin us. Either way, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. I wanted to grow LaBelle. I know we needed space. I had no office space for my growing management team, um, like zero offices in Amherst. So my team was always running around like nomads with, you know, rolling briefcases. <laughs> you know, I just felt like for my team, um, they needed opportunity to grow too. So if I kept them kind of pigeonholed in Amherst, they wouldn't be able to grow and grow their teams. Um, you know, now we're, we have 222 employees. Um, so we're, you know, this, this was like a more than doubling of LaBelle um, and, and the overall business and taking on a golf course, which I mean, I've never, I like to golf, but I've never run a golf course. So all of it, all in all, it was pretty crazy. Um, and I looked at my husband and I said, you know, I really think we can make that place beautiful and we can make it LaBelle. Um, it'll allow us to to house our employees properly. It'll allow us to host more events. It'll allow me to expand the brand. And I, I think we can do it. And we, we worked out a financing deal with the folks that owned it that you know gave us a little runway to, until I could convert to conventional financing in the spring, which I did. Um, and we just said, let's go for it. You know, life is short. And I really try hard not to waste my days. And I, I feel always like the clock is ticking, you know. And I, I came to wine late in life. So I didn't I don't want to waste another five or six years trying to figure out what the next growth plan was going to be. I just wanted to go for it. And, and it's not like you stayed still. It's not like you opened up the winery and then this you got to these other opportunities. You've been very entrepreneurial throughout this adventure. Can you talk about some of the different avenues you've gone down and which ones have really worked and which ones you went, I'll try it and maybe didn't work out so much, but at least you went for it. Yeah, you know, I love to I love to grow business. I love to develop businesses, not just my own. You know, even if somebody else comes to me and says, you know, oh, I have a business idea. Like, oh, let's sit down and talk about that. Let's get a notebook. <laughs> let's see what we can do. I just think it's fun. You know, it's kind of like solving a giant puzzle or it something. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. So 
you know, we've tried a lot of things throughout the years. You know, LaBelle itself has grown. Um, we've grown our brand called the Winemaker's Kitchen, which is a culinary line of products that we've launched. And that's probably going to launch into hopefully a television show at some point. We're working on that. That's kind of in the works. Um, I can tell you more about that later if you want to hear about it. But um, oh, we will. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, trying the, like the retail store in Portsmouth, yeah, that took a long time for me to get open because the, the New Hampshire state law actually prevented me from opening a second location at the time. So it took me three years to change the laws in New Hampshire. So I first had to change the law and lobby and figure out all that. And then I got to open my, open my, my little retail storefront in Portsmouth. So, you know, some of these things have been easy to try. Some have been hard. The, I'd say getting that law changed definitely was a difficult one because, mm-hmm. you know, it just, just took a long time. And, you know, just getting the right people to rally around it was difficult. Can you give just for our listeners a little bit more detail around that that law that was changed or what was originally keeping you from doing that other location? Yeah, sure. Um, originally, the state law in New Hampshire allowed for only one tasting room adjacent to a manufacturing, a wine manufacturing facility. So I would be allowed to taste wine to you and sell bottles of wine to you only in that one geographic location that was physically adjacent to my manufacturing facility. That's how the law was written. But all the states around us support their wine industries by allowing multiple satellite tasting room locations uh-huh. that would kind of help drive people back to the mothership where yeah, the wine's being yeah. made and, you know, help get the word out about about that local wine product. So I was trying to use the other state laws as um, an examples of how we could, you know, model our law here in the state. Um, I was trying to get five satellite locations because that's generally what, you know, Pennsylvania, Maine, New York, uh-huh. what they all allow. Um, and we were gifted with one so How far. special. Thanks, New Hampshire. <laughs> I'm happy for the opportunity to have one. Good, it's all good. good. And we'll see how that goes. But yeah. so that that so that store in Portsmouth is special because it has a tasting room, but we're not actually making wine there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to if people want to see the winemaking process, they get um, you know, asked to, you know, please visit our location in Amherst where they can do a tour and see how the wine is made. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which again is an awesome idea. It's cool. Uh, yeah. It's good. It, it, it captures another market for us, <laughs> you know, and tourists <laughs> especially. Yes. Uh, so our, our demographic in Portsmouth is about 80% tourists versus <laughs> locals. <laughs> whereas, you know, in Amherst, it's almost all locals. Yeah. So it's, it's different people. Awesome. Um, one, one example of something that didn't work for us. Uh-huh is, you know, and this was a low cost, kind of low risk, but I just wanted to try it. Uh, and this was to, to open a little wine store at the Merrimack Outlets. Yes. And that was fun for a little while, but ultimately um, the state, I didn't, I hadn't passed that law yet. So mm-hmm. they only let me sell wine on certain days there when I got a festival license and it was kind of very messy to be there. Mm-hmm. So the licensing was really, really tricky there. And ultimately, um, the Merrimack Outlets received an offer from a very large corporate, you know, chain um, for that space that was much higher than the money that I could pay as a local, you know, mm-hmm. renter. So we we let that store go after some time and just said, lessons learned. It's all good. We don't. That's not our. That's not our bag. So that didn't work out. But yeah. you know, we try. Right. And, 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 you know, you have to try things. And But Absolutely. I think it's also an important lesson for folks out there that if you try something and it's not working, don't keep trying to make it work. Right. right. No, you, you know, got to know when to cut it. Right. Yes. 
Yeah. You got to know when to, to cut it. Listen to the situation. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's okay to make mistakes in mm-hmm. business. You know, mm-hmm. we're, how else do you learn? Right. right. We talk about that it's here. I talk about that with clients a lot that yeah, failure is, is it, you know, may not be your favorite option, obviously, but it's, it's inevitable at some point. You know, the whole thing may not come down, but something may not work. Yeah. And I think the most important part is you have to learn from that and understand, okay, we did something, we learned something, we move on, we focus on, you know, what's working. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's really important as a business owner that you understand your numbers and your financials going into mm-hmm. an opportunity like that. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, I'm willing to put this much on the table. You know, I'm willing to risk this much at this, you know, chance at doing this expansion or whatever it is. And if it doesn't work, what are the consequences for me? And, you know, make sure that it's not going to topple your whole empire. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know, so, right. you know, you, you got to be real strategic and real careful with your financials. Yeah. And I like that part too. I inter- I'm I'm entertained by math. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> I enjoy okay. that part. She's a true entrepreneur. <laughs> we no, knew we knew that. Though. As I told you earlier, I'm a I'm a nerd. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, nerd entrepreneur, sure, sure, but successful and 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 wow. Um, and now New Hampshire has a very vibrant wine scene. There's mm-hmm. you, you've watched other wineries come onto the scene as well as watched you know craft beer take off and. Um, and even spirits now is, uh, are finding a foothold here in the state. What's it been like to watch that and be part of the early movement of it? And is that been something to help spur you on? Is it been more competition? What's that been like for you? It's funny. I don't view it as competition at all. I think there's really room for everybody and all the good products that are being made, whether they're craft spirits or beers or wines. I, I think it's awesome. The more the merrier. You know, I think that the more we can make good, excellent product in New Hampshire and bring a spotlight to those craft products, the better off we'll all be. So I'm super happy when I see new places popping up. I think it's great. Um, and I love that I was, you know, I would say like on the ground floor of that or the founding uh, aspect of that, Mm -hmm. because I think that especially as a woman, you know, when I first started making wine, for example, there weren't any other women winemakers in New England, not a single one. That's Um, surprising. It's amazing. And, and, you know, only about 20% of the world's wine is made by women anyway overall, but um, especially there was a real lack of that in New England, and there's not that many wineries here, so I get it. Mm-hmm. But um, since I started my winery, and you know we've, we've grown as much as we have, uh, a lot of women winemakers, there's a, a lot right in New Hampshire now, there's, you know, gosh, four or five, I can think right off the top of my head, nice. women-owned wineries, so mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm really happy. I hope I had a part in inspiring some of that, and I've certainly talked to a lot of them, so... I think you, I think you have. Absolutely. Um, we talked a little bit about, well, you mentioned earlier your, your focus on you know, giving back to the community. Um, we talked a little bit about in, in um, our introduction of you about a uh, nonprofit that you founded called Empowering Angels. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well? absolutely. I'd, lo- I'd love to. Cool. Um, it came to me a few years back. My son was actually working on a project for school that involved laying out some business plans. And I said, oh, that's really cool. I said, this is interesting. And it, and it was talking about, you know, the cost of goods and, you know, real business topics. I was like, this is cool. I'm going to buy. And then I got this really big springboard idea off of it. I said, you know what? It seems to me that especially young girls, but boys too, and we've expanded, we include boys now too in Empowering Angels. But 
wouldn't it be great if kids could see an opportunity for their life that was based on entrepreneurial skills and goals and maybe starting their own business, whether or not they have a trust fund, whether or not they go to college even, um, because you can start businesses without all of that, all of that debt and all of that background if you're willing to self-teach and if you're willing to self-learn. So Empowering Angels is based around that concept of empowering um, kids to think about entrepreneurship as an as a viable real option, they may not have. Not everybody has the opportunity to go to college, and it's not right for everybody anyway. Right. Um, right. True. And so I just wanted the kids to have this concept that they could be they could be a business owner. That it isn't just for people that are in their ivory towers, or just for people who have you know tons of money behind them. Um, because it, it's it's not the way it is. If you just work hard and you have the right skills, you can you can do whatever you want. That's what we love about entrepreneurship. Yeah. So the first year, so what we what we had been doing was bringing um, kind of a empowering angels class to the winery for a two day session, and we started with all the girls at Girls Inc. Mm-hmm. So they would come to the winery. So, so the first session we had sixty girls. And we would just feed the heck out of them. So we give them this awesome breakfast, lunch, dinner, <laughs> snacks to take home. Give them notebooks. Give them all the pens, everything they needed to do this work. And I brought in women from around the state who had specialties in marketing or banking or you know finance or you know whatever the specialty, uh, mar- um, like, you know cre- creation of product, like um, innovation. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. those kinds of people. You know, I got some folks from um, the Center for Women's Business Advancement at UNH, or it's SNHU. Um, you know, it was an awesome collaboration of some pretty awesomely powerful women. And it, we sat those 60 girls down in the morning, the first day after they finished their breakfast, and we said, okay, how many of you think you can start a business? Maybe like two tentative hands kind of went up. At the end of the second day, when we'd already gone through all of these teachings, they've written a business plan now, a mini business plan. They've pitched their business idea to a panel of experts. They've done all the work. They've figured it all out, their cost of goods, their marketing, their finance, what they're going to name it, what they're going to make, everything. The end of that second day, how many of you think you can own your own business? Every hand went oh, up. Oh, that's wow. the stuff right there. More goosebumps. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Goosebumps. I was going to say, now you're giving me the goosebumps. So oh, that man. was powerful. And I said, gosh, it just gives them another option. Yes. You know, now they yes. know they can do it. That's beautiful. It's cool. That it's is, really cool. So wow. we raised money for that throughout the year. And we um, obviously that got stuck with COVID a little mm, bit too, because yeah. we weren't allowed to bring kids in and we right. weren't allowed to go into classrooms. And so we've been in a little bit of a holding pattern, reworking our programs a mm-hmm. little bit, trying mm-hmm. to find some, make some really short ones that aren't two day programs yep. so that we can bring those into classrooms or um, invite people to the winery for shorter after school programs, that kind of thing. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's, it's yeah. good that's fantastic. And, and so, you know, I, I always hate to ask this question when we've talked about all these things that you've done, but you know, serial entrepreneurs are never going to sit still. <laughs> so, what's next? You mentioned a possible TV show. Can you spill a little more tea about that, and uh, or wine, as yeah. the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, how are things going with the new newest location, and and what you're going to grow that into? So, what's next? 
Well, so if last year's theme was surviving COVID, this year's theme is stabilizing dairy, which is the new property. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, doing all the things related to launching that enormous business in dairy and getting it up and running, Um, figuring out how to run a golf course, for example. Um, We also have a market in dairy, so figuring out how to run a market, um, what kind of products are working there, what aren't, you know, all that. Opening a brand new restaurant called Americus there, that that name Americus is... It's also one of our wines. Um, that name is our tribute to the American dream, uh, as we think this country is amazing and we're so grateful to live here and all the opportunities that are provided to us by this beautiful place. So America's the restaurant is our tribute. And it's a beautiful restaurant, um, kind of... Um, it's a beautiful space, but it's not fancy. So you can come off the golf course and enjoy a nice meal, um, but not feel like out of place because you're not dressed up or whatever. It has a little touch of a Chicago Prohibition style era. Oh, it's it's and it's got all bourbon tones. Oh. And it, I built the whole restaurant around a wall, a lit wall of bourbon. Ooh, so it's, oh it's a pretty God. place. Matt, you want to take a field trip? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> uh, you guys better come see uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's a beautiful place. And then the ballroom, of course, for, you know, events and all that. So stabilizing all of that and all the new employees and all the new managers and just getting that under control. Um, What's coming next in dairy is that today, actually, we just started installing our winter lights program. So LaBelle Lights at Dairy is going to run for three months. That is huge. It's going to be awesome. I saw a press release about that recently. Yay. I was so excited. Yeah, that's going to be a wonderful thing. So it's a it's a half a mile walking tour around the golf course, which we will transform into this winter wonderland of the spectacular lights show. It's going to be oh, epic. Nice. Wow. Not hokey, like, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah, like a 2D snowman. <laughs> like, you know. No. Hey, that's my front yard. You watch out. Yeah. Come see that. <laughs> no, you won't. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> but, you know, I want people to come and just have an opportunity to be outside, especially for folks who are still not super comfortable being inside. Yes. So this is going to give families the opportunity to take a nice walk, view some gorgeous lights, be awestruck. And the, the finale of it is this 44-foot-long LED tunnel. It's crazy. Ooh. It's going to be really, really beautiful. And then Sparkly you know, for me. I'm there. I oh, know, right? Another field trip with Matt. <laughs> but at least it's worth it. Cool. So that's cool. coming up real fast. We'll open that to the public next week on Thursday night. Um, so we hope you all come out and, and have a nice time with your families and make a reservation at the restaurant and enjoy some food at the market. And how long will that be running through? You know, we're running that through February because it's going to. The theme will change throughout the winter. So right now, obviously focused on holidays and family items, uh, changing to a fire and ice theme for January. Ooh. That's going to be nice. And, uh, you know, and we'll do um, probably an ice bar and some fire themed (laughs) events during that. I almost jokingly said an ice bar and you said an ice bar. An ice bar. I can't help it. We have to. It's January. And then we're going to switch February to two themes. Um, The first part of February obviously focused on Valentine's Day and Lover's Lane and all kinds of fun stuff around love because we love love. And then um, the second part of February being focused on Mardi Gras for the big big hurrah ending. So we'll be doing probably a Mardi Gras ball at the end of February. And transitioning that uh, with the with the Jeez, lights. It's like I guess I should just move to Derry. I know. <laughs> got so much to do now. And well, so you're also ready for your close up, Mr. DeMille. So let's <laughs> let's hear <laughs> what can you tell us about this possible TV gig? Well, you know, I love to teach. That's part of 
something, you know, part of the thing about the winery is I love to teach. We do so many classes. I do tons of cooking with wine classes and how to use wine as a main ingredient in your cooking, not just as a complement to your meal. You know, so that always gives me this great platform to help people elevate their culinary skills at home and teach people how to make, I don't know, awesome wine-based whatever. You know, we do different themes every month and it's I've taught a class a month on cooking with wine ever since we opened so it's it's a lot of classes at this point and we've had a ton of fun teaching the public and they're always well received um so you know between teaching those teaching my wine tasting classes you know teaching is a real platform for me I just I love to share my knowledge of wine and food I love to cook so you know this all comes pretty natural to me and it's just normal that we wanted to parlay that into a bigger audience. So during the pandemic, one of the things that Caesar, my husband, and I did was to pretty quickly start filming videos for the community um, on how to, you know, I, I had a lot of friends who were in a panic. Like, I never cook. I always get takeout. Oh, my gosh. How are we going <laughs> to feed my family? No restaurants are open. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so we started doing videos on how to do little cooking projects at home with your family. Um, and they were very well received by our local community. A lot of people sending back pictures or videos. Hey, this is us making pasta. Thanks for the recipe. Hey, thanks for you know giving my family something to do on Friday night. We all learned how to make pizza with your video. And then we enjoyed it together with a bottle of your wine. Great. Um, so we started these little videos. And it was great practice, and I really enjoyed doing it. So that kind of parlayed into some work with PBS. And we have been doing some work with PBS anyway, and um, we were able to do four um, shows with PBS back in January of this past year. And we, you know, we launched those. They were very well-received. PBS was happy. Uh, we're working on another show coming up with PBS, hopefully called Amy's Cooking with Friends, where we'll invite celebrities you guys can come um <laughs> i'll go i'm no celebrity but i'll be there <laughs> you know we'll, we'll cook something together and it'll be fun um so working with pbs on that but in the meanwhile a, a, a producer from california saw some of our pandemic videos and she reached out and said you know i'm interested um in talking with you about you know doing something bigger um on a national stage and it's funny because at first i kind of was blowing it off. I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want to do a reality show. I don't know what this lady's talking about. Um, but then I researched who she was, and I said, oh, Emmy Award-winning producer. Interesting. She's re she's the real deal. I think I better pay attention to this. And so she flew out this summer with her crew and filmed a pilot, um, and they're putting together that, the editing that down now. And um, we'll start pitching that out in early January. So, hey, somebody might pick it up. Maybe never. Maybe it will come to nothing. I'm. I have no idea. We're just hopeful, and we wish for the best as always. Or we can say we knew her when. Oh yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling something will come from it. Well, with that your, show with your track record. That show would be called <laughs> the Winemaker's Kitchen. So it's kind of a fun, um, you know, play on on everything at the winery, and it'd be a lifestyle show based around cooking, just like my real life is, um, you know, and the winery and back and forth from the vineyard and including my family and, and how I take care of my family being as busy as I am. And I, we still cook from scratch every day. My family eats good, solid food every day. And there's a real plan and planning to that. So I'd like to teach people how to do that. That's awesome. Well, well, thank you for coming here and inspiring us. I feel like I yeah. need to go do something. Yeah. <laughs> so she's she's inspiring. She's hardworking. She's genuine. She's a damn good winemaker. And she's Amy LaBelle, founder and winemaker at LaBelle Winery. We are so happy you came to hang out and talk with us and tell us your story. Thank you so much. Well, you guys are great. And you're a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. 
And now the buzz with Matt Mowry. Here's what businesses are buzzing about this week. So uh, uh, we both have been dealing with this whole affordable housing crunch or the lack thereof. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> Very much so. crazily, we both got involved in the housing market. So what happened with you? Oh, my God. Well, for uh, we've been renting this great place uh, in a great point uh, space in Bethlehem and, and – um, for five years since we've started renting, we're like, oh, geez, I wish we could buy this place. And it just, you know, it didn't happen. The right time wasn't over the last five years. And then recently the the owners came to us and said, we want to sell. Are you interested? And I said to my wife, yes, yes, we're interested. Yes, whatever <laughs> we have to say. Yes, we're interested. And um, thank God we, you know, have a relationship. We understand the house. Uh, we, you know, have a relationship with the, the sellers because um, we are uh, – very thankful for the deal that we're getting because otherwise we would not be in the market for housing. It's like the unicorn of housing stories right now. Like Ugh. you don't have to move. The, the, you're already in the place. Oh, yeah. you got a good offer. Even the folks at the bank were like, we're going to fight for you. Everything we need to do, if we need to do anything, we're going to do it because you're never going to get a deal like this again. I'm like, yeah, I know. Thanks. There are many people out there that are not liking you right now. I know. Like, I, I know. Like, Sorry, we, folks. We, you know, decided... You know, we, we bought our house, which is a, a two-bedroom, one-bathroom ranch, back when it was just my wife and I, and we didn't think we were going to have kids. And then our kiddos came into our lives, and um, you know, it was all fine when they were two and four, but now mm-hmm. they are ten and twelve. Oh God! And you know, they're either getting along famously or at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. And after the pandemic, you know, our, we're still in, but you know, the shutdown where we're on lockdown and together twenty-four-seven, we went, we we. We need space. <laughs> so so we entered the market, and I, I mean, I saw firsthand, I mean, it was just, uh, you'd go to an open house, and there'd be 20 offers, and by Monday, the house was off the market. Yeah. There was even some like that- For like 20 grand even, more than asking. Yes. Right? It was crazy. We bid on two houses. One, we were 50 grand over. Asking, didn't get it. And I, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, I have to say after months of looking, we found a house, we have an offering, we're about to close on it. So I'm, I'm thrilled. It's, it's a, you know, four bedroom, two and a half bath, uh, the kids. Party at Matt's house. Yeah. You know, (laughs) when, when my youngest king, you know, we adopted them, came into care with us originally, his first question to us was, do I get my own room? Cause he had shared everything with his brother and we're just like, sorry, bud. You guys are sharing. So we're finally now able to get that dream. You know, like his own room. Yeah. But, you know, I bring it up because, um, you know, we're not the only ones obviously experiencing this huge housing crunch. And the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy and the Center for Ethics and uh, Society at St. Anselm College, they recently released a report called Residential Land Use Regulation in New Hampshire, Causes and Consequences. Um, and it shows how local land use regulations have contributed to New Hampshire's um, severe housing shortage. And so, um, you know, I highly recommend people take a look at it. Oh, if only it's the first of its kind ranking of New Hampshire municipalities based on how hostile they are to housing development. So that alone oh, is worth the look, wow. right? But among the report's findings are that, you know, strict land use regulations are driving lower and middle income families out of communities. Um, artifi- it's, they're artificially inflating home prices. They um, occur primarily in communities that have experienced high housing demand. Uh, these strict regulations are um, spreading 
spreading to neighboring communities. So those that used to be strict, now the ones around them are instituting them. And um, these really strict land use regulations are most common in the seacoast, the upper valley, the lakes region, uh, the White Mountains, and the wealthier suburbs of Manchester and Nashville. So this is a, you know, this whole issue around zoning is really affecting not, you know, our state as a whole, but it's throughout our state. Um, and we so, see it, you know, there's some, there's some examples of some in, in the North country, uh, you know, and, and even in the, you know, Conway area, I know that there was some and, and, um, yeah, but it is, it's statewide. Yeah, it, is it really statewide. is. So, you know, we have to get that under control if we're ever going to solve our, our affordable housing issue. So, well, that is the buzz this week. Welcome back to the Cardinal Corner. I'm Nathan Carroll. Let's talk cybersecurity. It's a little scary, I know. Uh, did you know, though, the average annual cost of a cyber attack for small business is about $25,000? Over half of cyber attacks are attackers looking for ransom, which that ransom itself is more than half million dollars. I don't know about you guys, but I don't have that kind of money sitting around. Um, so, my small business friends... What can we do to prevent cyber attacks? I think the biggest thing is probably to educate ourselves, right? Hook up with our business advisor or our tech counsel to learn more about what's going on in the tech world, especially with cyber attacks, because these are things that can topple your business overnight. Um, let's take some easy steps, though. We won't go too far today down into the rabbit hole, but um, change your passwords frequently or use a password manager. We all have like a gazillion passwords, Use a password manager. It's encrypted. It's easy to use. It's probably easier for you to remember, too. How about don't open those suspicious attachments? And that seems like kind of a no-brainer, but if you're not sure, maybe look at the email address first. Is it from the right person? Does it look suspicious? Is the file name suspicious? All these things, you know, just like natural bells that go off to go, wait a second, this might not be something for me, or this might just be... A malicious file. Um, if an email, for example, looks like it's coming from someone you know, and so, but something is just not right, maybe the, the words are off or it's not their style of, of writing, um, do me a favor, call them. Yeah, I know it's, it's very 90s, but call them. Okay, you can text them too, um, but just say, hey, did you send me that file? And if they did, great. You just saved yourself you know, some headaches. If they didn't, you know, then you saved yourself from a cyber attack. So good for you. Um, I talk also a lot about having the right team on your side. So a key member of that team, of that, uh, of your team, your core people, needs to be an IT company. It needs to be an IT consultant, someone you trust, someone who can make sure your network is fortified, uh, as fortified as it needs to be based on the type of business. If you're an accountant, you're going to have a heck of a lot, uh, or in healthcare, for example, you're going to have a heck of a lot uh, more that you're going to need to think about than if you are, I don't know, a business consultant, maybe. Just be smart. Um, <clears throat> also, and this, again, depends on the type of business you have, but check with your business insurance agent to see if you have or are eligible for loss coverage in the event of a cyber attack. That's huge because of those numbers we talked about earlier. $25,000 is just the cost to overcome it, never mind how much you, they're going to want for ransom. So, And the resources that come with having someone like your insur insurance agent on your side. Um, I could throw more facts and, and whatnot at you about cost and frequency of cyber attacks, but 
Um, let's spend less time doing that and more time getting you set up for success. So until next time, thanks for joining me behind the layers of network security in the Cardinal Corner. Find more at our website, cardinalconsultingnh.com or on social at cardinalconsultingnh. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard in today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a joint production of Business NH Magazine and Cardinal Consulting. Listen to us anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.